0: Hi everyone, Duncan Green here with the roundup of the po- this week's posts on From Poverty to Power. It's a su- the sun's come out after rain, it's approaching lunchtime and tragically the highlight of my day which is when I actually leave the house and go and buy a cheeky sandwich for my lunch. What, is th- what have things come to, eh? Working from home. Anyway, never mind. Let's get on with the posts. So the first post was actually last week, but it came in a bit after I'd recorded my usual roundup. So it's from Katie Chakraborty, who's um, our sort of star lead on advocacy. And it's about the UK budget. So it's a bit UK centric, but bear with me. We had the budget, which is this big set piece moment um, in British politics last week. And Katie was asking what the, what the budget left out. Since election manifestos tend to appear only twice a decade, party leadership pledges can be made in TV debates and quietly forgotten, and the King's speech is delivered with an air of regal deference, it often falls to the budget and financial statements delivered twice a year by the Chancellor, which is the UK finance minister, to inform the country of the current policy direction of their government. And so we heard yesterday from Jeremy Hunt of the drive for growth and the plan to get people working all set against a backdrop of economic forecasts and global markets. Budget statements are key moments of transparency and accountability for government. The opposition parties prepare blistering responses, so they hope. The papers pour over the leaks and the details, parliament debates for days, and think tanks left and right count off their policy wins. Except listen to the language used in these moments. We are not a country, we are an economy. We're not people, we are economic actors, only really visible in so much as we do or don't contribute to formal paid work. We measure our fortunes by gross domestic product, GDP, no matter that this aggregate figure can tell you little or nothing about people's real lives or the huge inequalities that remain. And we humans are primarily organised into businesses or workplaces, not families or communities. It is perhaps worth noting that while the government is proud of its record of three female UK Prime Ministers, we've never had a Chancellor who wasn't a man. Listen to the language used in these, sorry, within the confines of these, this framing, there are very real and very welcome announcements in this budget. The drive for growth has moved from faith in trickle down economics to measures that will genuinely help people to earn more from increased childcare support and upfront childcare payments. Childcare campaigners that we work with, like those convened by the Women's Budget Group, deserve real credit for their advocacy on this. Continued household support for energy prices will reassure many, and the government has rightly seen off the calls to cut headline rates of tax for the biggest companies. Into calmer waters, question mark, is the hopeful refrain from the Resolution Foundation think tank as it assesses this budget. The news is of a shallower recession than feared, some ease of inflation and a bit of fiscal headroom as government borrowing costs decrease. Fiscal headroom means that they have a bit more money to spend. But are the waters really calm? Though the graphs in the treasury document today may tell a story of just about managing, many households are in real crisis. Some easing of inflation just means prices are rising less swiftly. The same news bulletins that tell us about policies to get people back to work also report era-defining strike action continuing across the NHS and public sector. Those jobs are not paying enough and the institutions they are in are a breaking point. And as that basic architecture falls away, the health service, social care provision, early years education and childcare, no waving of the budget box will convince people that they are primarily economic agents in workplaces. There are disabled people, people with sicknesses, and people with children and relatives to care for. What would happen if we considered policymaking differently, not as a drive for growth per se, but a focus on improving people's lives? Not a narrow conception of work coming with a paycheck, but a willingness to see unpaid carers as workers too. Not valuing people by by how much money they have or make, but giving people money because of how intrinsically valuable they are. On this basis, there is no charity or scrounging in carers receiving Social Security. It is what society invests in those who keep our society and economy going. Rather than talking about the need to get people back to work in his statement, the Chancellor might applaud and recognise the very real work being done day in, day out by millions, often women, as they take on unpaid care roles. Although they may prefer to be able to continue with paid work, they deserve a system that gives them a choice. He might heed the calls of the Trussell Trust and Joseph Roundtree Foundation to enshrine in law a social security system that guarantees people can afford the basics in life, recognising that all have value and shouldn't do without essential needs. It might look like recognising those that in the caring and green classes, the NHS staff, the teachers, and those who get us around on public transport, they cannot live on clapping alone and offer a meaningful boost to public sector pay. It might look like ending the narrative that sees those with the least in this ec- in this country pitted against those with the least in the rest of the world, as the overseas aid budget continues to be cut and raided in the name of fiscal prudence and need at home. And finally, it might look like seriously e- tackling economic equality to do this. Tax Justice UK and patriotic millionaires have developed a range of tax measures for the wealthiest ranging from a net wealth tax on those over 10 million pounds to equalizing capital gains tax with income tax. Combined that could bring in around 50 billion dollars of revenue a- annually as well as act on it as a break on inflation. The Chancellor would have us believe he was doing the best for us today with the hand he was dealt but how that hand appears is defined by choices. He defines what the economy is, what to count, what to class as crisis, what to value, and for whom he wants stability and success. In this world of very real crisis for millions, we need a bit more imagination. Very nice piece. Then this week I kicked off with links I liked and it was Gary Lineker time. Again this is all very Brito-centric, I'm sorry about this, but the former England footballer and um, ace BBC football commentator Gary Lineker has been getting into a massive fight with the government over refugee rights Um, and a lot of the uh, government backbenchers got very angry with him over some of the things he said about the government uh, uh, illegal immigration as it's called uh, legislation Uh, and he was taken off air for a bit but all the other football commentators refused to go on air as well while he was off and in the end the BBC lost and backed down and Lineker's back on. And he's supposed to to abide by the rules while they review them, but he did some nice trolling. He put up a new Twitter profile pic, which is him in front of a quote from George Orwell on the freedom of speech. It says, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. And he's smiling happily next to this big quote, and it's cut into stone on a wall, and the wall is right outside the BBC, top trolling. But he also tweeted a wonderful commentary. A final thought on all this row. However difficult the last few days have been, it simply doesn't compare to having to flee your home from persecution or war to seek refuge in a land far away. He's he's rapidly becoming everyone's hero, at least those of us in the um, give a damn sector. Next one was book review. Lives Amid Violence, Transforming Development in the Wake of Conflict by Mareka Schomerus. Heavy title, quite a heavy book, but also one of the wisest books I've read in a long time. To write it, she became a modern-day hermit. Uh, she talks in the intro about solitude, storms and music in a retreat to the Shetland Islands to reflect on and synthesise the lessons of a mon- monster tenure research programme, the Sustainable Livelihoods Research Consortium. And that means, yeah, that research provides fantastic examples to illustrate her big themes, but the book is grouped around the big themes. Shomra's got me from the opening paragraphs. When life is complicated, causality is alluring. The possibility that there could exist a straight line of cause and effect, fuels conspiracy theories, creates powerful arguments, and has been the logic underpinning countless international development programs. Even complexity when acknowledged, tends to be depicted as a convoluted image of a warbled spaghetti to replace the normally straight causality lines leading from A to B. Yet even tangled spaghetti diagrams still depict imagined causality. They have a starting and an end point. What follows is a brilliant reflection on the power and stickiness of mental models in the aid business. Causation, what works, metaphors like building things or gardening. She summarizes this as, Relevant indicators could be security, legitimacy, governance, preferably of the good type, economic development, service delivery, and institutional capacity. Improvement in these indicators signals progress in people's lives, which equals recovery and development. Service delivery plays a huge part in this. Improving access to services while challenging seems obviously related to a better environment, which in turn must translate into a better perception of those in power and a better outlook overall. So that's a sort of the way she summarizes the mental model behind a lot of aid in these you know, post, post-conflict recovery situations. But instead what, she, what the consortium and what uh, Shamras argue is rather than a capturable picture, what is needed is learning how to live with ambiguity, contradiction and revision. The book is specifically concerned with inv- environments of current or past violence and what makes them different to work in as an aid program. I'm not a humanitarian, but a lot of what she proposes seems absolutely right. I give her chapter summary in the blog, I won't repeat it here, but she summarizes some of the barriers to changes within the aid sector as people are too busy to notice there is a problem. Confirmation bias means people only see what they already believe. Familiarity and availability bias means people only draw on what they're most familiar with. Fear of failure, means people choose the action for which they're least likely to be criticised in the event things go wrong. Groupthink means people find it very difficult to raise a dissenting voice. People see clear lines of cause and effect, meaning that acknowledging how issues interconnect and how one action may deepen complexity can be a hugely unsettling experience. Recognise any of that? I love to focus on assets, building on what exists, either in people's heads or on the ground, like you know, markets that are actually functioning a bit at least, rather than coming in with something new and alien. Also, the focus on empathy or POVO, point of view of the other. If aid workers cannot at least try to understand how people on the ground perceive issues such as risk, livelihoods, migration, patronage, etc., their interv- interventions are destined to fail and maybe even do harm. And then in a final chapter, she teams up with a practitioner, Stephanie Buell, to try and extract some so-whats for practitioners. They set out what they call practical ideas for change, but also for inner work, the personal journey aid workers must undertake to unlearn the current model and embrace ambiguity and reality. All this is very wise, but also quite gnomic. It's quite, you know, intangible. The examples are great, but I would have liked more. Even the very welcome final chapter is pretty meta meta it reminds me of some moral religious text that study groups should take read and reflect on to uncover the implications for their daily lives and practices so I think this is a significant book it's got a very academic looking cover it's got a very high price but wonder of wonders it is open access so everybody can read it for free which is fantastic news so thank you Maikashos that's a top book the next chat uh, the next post is by Emily hater from on think tanks who weirdly are contracting their name to OTT. Uh, they want to be known as an acronym, but OTT also means over the top. So I'm not sure they've done their due diligence on that one. But anyway, Emily Hayter writing for OTT with one of the more improbable FP2P opening paragraphs. I work in the evidence informed policy sector, is always an interesting opener at personal and professional gatherings. She must go to dinner, different dinner parties to me. Anyway, over the years, I've noticed a few common themes that come up within the first five minutes of conversation that follows. See what you think. Question, evidence use is political, right? Answer, yes. Like any aspect of public policymaking, evidence use is closely intertwined with politics. Politics is often men- mentioned as a barrier to evidence use. The assumption seems to be that if only politics would get out of the way, then people could get on with a serious business of evidence use but politics is a fundamental part of any democratic system. And even though it can be challenging to navigate, I don't think any of us are looking for a dictatorship of scientists either. The thing that's interesting about evidence use for me is how evidence can interact with and be integrated into democratic systems, not just democratic systems actually, but that's, that's just me. And There are lots of different tools and approaches to help understand and address this. Next question, do policymakers even care about evidence? usually asked with a strong tone of skepticism and sometimes a note of condescension. Depends who you mean by policymakers. Often people use this term to mean the political layer of government. In many countries, national development plans, there are high level statements about building knowledge economies and engaging with the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The extent to which individual politicians are personally interested in and committed to these statements, of course, varies enormously. And with high turnover rates in elections, that means a constantly shifting landscape. However, one thing that's often forgotten is that the politician is unlikely to be the person who invests time in reading a piece of research or combines it with other research to inform a decision. That's the civil servants. Those are the people who are weighing up different courses of action, providing briefing papers on possible implications and costs of different avenues, reviewing progress of policies that are already being implemented, identifying evidence gaps, commissioning new evidence and so on. And I haven't met a civil servant yet who isn't interested in what the evidence says about the issues they are working on. I think she has had a charmed life, I have to say that. But anyway, next question. What kind of evidence are you talking about? I think, insert favourite method here, is the best one. One of the first implications of taking a user-centred approach to evidence is recognising the multiple different kinds of evidence that are combined in decision making. The most common and overlapping categories of evidence are things like citizen knowledge, research statistics, practice-informed knowledge or stakeholder consultation. Different types of evidence will be more suitable for different decisions. But it's much more likely that evidence of different methodologies, sources and disciplines will be combined to feed into an understanding of a policy problem or potential solution than policymakers relying on one type of evidence alone. Next question. How can we measure what evidence is used? Ah, this is the million dollar question. And of course, it's one which donors are particularly interested in. There are more forms of evidence use than we might think, and there are various ways of measuring evidence use. It's important to remember that drawing on one piece of evidence for one decision is a small part of this. Much of the focus and preoccupation of the sector so far, as far as I've seen, is on how to build routine evidence use within organisations. This means building evidence use into the everyday machinery of government so that on an ongoing basis, organisations are identifying their evidence needs, planning for them, liaising with researchers and applying the evidence. That is in some ways a messier, more long-term endeavour than having one piece of research influence one decision. But the rationale is that it's hopefully also more sustainable in the long term. And then the final piece was a piece of research that I was involved with. I don't write many academic papers. I can't see the point because hardly anybody reads them and they take ages. But this was what I was involved in with, with some really great co-authors, uh, Patricia Stiss, uh, Stice, sorry, Tom Kirk and Tom Mosquera. What can a water project in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, tell us about adaptive management in fragile or conflict affected settings? So this was from my last pre-COVID trip. Uh, which was September 2019 and yet three and a half years later the resulting paper has come out and it's still a draft it's not even the final version. Academic publishing is slow but it charts an attempt by Mercy Corps to drive change in a water sector that has massively failed citizens in the city of Goma through a project called Imagine. It's a very complex story I warn you lots of acronyms and tangled processes but if you can dig down I think it's very revealing about how attempts to reform a crucial service sector do or don't succeed in these fragile and conflict affected settings, um, these very messy places, which is increasingly where aid is going to be functioning over the next few years. It's very hard to blog about such a nuanced, complex story. Tom Kirk, who's one of the authors, introduced the paper's focus on ideas of adaptive management and public authority in another blog, which I linked to. I went for an interesting attempt to conceptualize how things work in Congolese Congolese politics via a four logics model. So I'll just read you the extract. I've deleted all the references, there's loads of those, but you can look those up. Our first logic is that of basic needs and specifically people's need for water. A recent study of 24 households in Goma's low uh, and medium socioeconomic strata found that water is the third largest monthly expenditure after food and education yet acquiring it is an uncertain and sometimes risky activity, with predatory providers prone to changing process and harassing women sent to pumps. The need for water also creates its own politics. As a civil society representative put it when interviewed on September the 30th, everything about water here is political, but for the population, water talks louder than politicians. For civil society movements such as Les Deboutistes, Poor water provision has provided fertile ground for social mobilisation. In 2018, members marched through Goma with empty jerry cans to highlight the plight of three undeserved underserved neighborhoods. For politicians, water provision and infrastructure are important, sorry, for politicians, water provision and infrastructure are important signals of their power. For example, in 2019, the DRC's new po- president, Felix Ch- Chisakedi, financed a pumping station on Lake Kivu right next to Goma next to a well-known public park and ensured that his name was prominently displayed on the building. Our second logic is that of lay Punda, roughly feeding the horse in Lingala, the local language. It implies that unless one's boss or an authority figure is well-fed and happy, they will not provide opportunities for others. The feed consists of the more or less official taxes regularly charged to the DRC's citizens. They include small fees for signatures and stamps on documents, tolls to pass checkpoints along roads, and anticipated contributions for public servants, like water for police on a hot day, or beans for the children of someone gatekeeping a service. These tracasserie, which means harassment or petty annoyances, are rarely discussed as corruption. Instead, they're matter-of-fact descriptions of how politicians, state officials, and a host of connected public authorities, like fixers, Customary leaders, protection groups, faith-based organizations must be motivated before citizens can access services. Other commentators and our interviewees often use the term rapportage, reporting upwards to describe similar dynamics. By one estimate, money collected in this way may be double what the Congolese state actually declares and triple that contributed by donor organizations. Much of it travels along patronage networks to the power holders in Kinshasa, the capital a 1,000 miles west, with network members eating portions along the way. Most analysts also agree that if such practices were abruptly stopped, the state would cease to function. Indeed, Rapportage ensures street-level administrators and other public authorities, whose wages are often undelivered, are remunerated for their activities. The third logic concerns the processes of negotiation, reciprocity and respect that structure state actions in the DLC. It stems from a more recent literature that stresses how statehood in these fragile places can often be the outcome of cooperative conflicts. These conflicts are rooted in the way colonial-era state institutions were layered on top of existing society's own, with little ability to enforce one set of rules over the other. Put another way, many fragile and conflict-affected settings have have been described as suffering from strong societies and weak states. The result is a form of stated under which every state activity, policy or service delivered requires a lengthy negotiated agreement that reflects the ever-changing balance of power. Those involved in the DRC's negotiations evaluate one another's power based on their formal status, access to resources and positions within wider networks. Where this is not possible, it was argued by our interviewees that consulting everyone concerned, often a lengthy process, ensures potentially obstructive stakeholders are not offended. This accords accords with an ethnographic literature that suggests that personal relationships have taken on greater importance in the absence of state institutions able to enforce rules. This is a really important thing that respect and involving everybody is a really important thing, often ignored by outsiders who come from more rule-based societies especially aid agencies and and embassies. So just understanding the importance of respect and inclusion of powerful people as well as civil society is, I think, one of the contributions of this paper. However, negotiations can also be used to obscure the politics of laissez Aponde, that, you know, basically corruption, and to thwart unwanted demands for transparency, meritocracy or reforms. Indeed, the politique de glissement, politics of slippage or seemingly glacial progress, is a well-known tactic for ensuring better negotiated outcomes. Basically just keep delaying and delaying and delaying to just avoid something you don't want to happen. We turn the fourth logic, which Imagine attempted to propagate, the Washington Consensus. So into this very complex system, Imagine tries to introduce something which refers to a set of policy prescriptions championed by Western development agencies in the 80s and 90s which broadly held that <clears throat> commercial companies and competitive markets provide public goods more efficiently than States. Trade liberalization encourages specialization and it attracts foreign investment and that countries should not run large fiscal deficits. Some proponents of these ideas also argued that due to developing states, developing country states multiple failures, the poor were already turning to unregulated commercial water providers. Accordingly, development organisations and international companies can play stewardship roles and assist the further privatisation and professionalisation of its provision. Although long challenged, the principles behind the Washington Consensus became increasingly identifiable and imagined as it evolved, and the programme initially sought to involve itself in the commercialisation of water provision thereby bucking the trend of humanitarians, providing unsustainable emergency relief, and the state water agency, Regisseur enjoying a natural mon- monopoly. So those are the logics, and then what the paper sets out is what happened next. And there was basically, basically politics came back in, frustrated the hell out of the Washington Consensus efforts, turned Imagine a bit into a public authority, it had to use politics to get its program through and become a public authority um, and, and ran up against these other logics. So I think that interplay of the logics is a really interesting part of the paper. It's not an easy read, but I think it's really illuminating. So if you've got the time and this is something you're interested in, please check it out. And with that, I'm off to buy my sandwich and have a great weekend. Bye.